fellow citizens. Let's, let's be let's be, be bluntly honest. Who's the heavyweight champion of the world? In my opinion, still and perhaps always will be the greatest. There's so much there. Okay, yeah. What are we doing, great champion? You help to unite our nation. The cry for freedom has only sport to pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody's, 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 nobody's calling LeBron Black Jesus. Welcome back to Sports and Society for August 9th. Uh, this is Brad. How are you doing today, Kyle? I'm doing well. Not not too bad. Um, we just went back to school this week while teachers went back and I'm thinking we might have one more week of that and then we'll all be back home. <laughs> so doing all right. How about you? Oh, we're doing all right. Uh, you know, it's a everyday struggle here, but uh, we try and try and see the good in it. So I hear that. Uh, what have you been paying attention to this week? Well, first off, I want to issue an apology for not editing out the portion where I had to go comfort my daughter yesterday or last week in our podcast. So apologies to anyone that listened to that. Uh, uh, hopefully we won't have any interruptions this week. <laughs> I love it. I'm glad it's in there. <laughs> um, the quarantine life, taking care of your kid all the time. Um, but uh, what uh, I've been paying attention to NBA stuff mainly this week, although Disc golf has again been high on my priority list. Um, but interestingly, I think what's interested me the most is that I am back interested in and paying attention to NBA media, particularly podcasts, which is a lot of how I've engaged with the NBA in the past. Yeah. Um, and so like I'll, when I'm at work this week, there were several days where I would just have an NBA podcast or two on while I'm doing whatever whatever mindless work I'm doing in that moment. Uh, and it was just really enjoyable. It felt, it felt good to be able to, um, you know, I guess in some ways I look for moments of normality mm-hmm. or what, what brings us to something that I can forget that we're going through what we're going through right now. Right. Um, and those were a good, good space for that. What is going on in the disc golf world right now? Big tournament actually in your old stomping grounds. Um, there's one of the biggest tournaments every year is called Idlewild. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I don't know if that name rings a bell for you. It uh, does, yes. Um, so there's a big course, I guess, Burlington, Kentucky. Does uh-huh. that sound right? Yeah. Um, so they're there this week, uh, the final round today. Um, Paul McBeth, the best in the world, is leading by one stroke going into the final round. So we'll see. It's a super difficult course. Like you watch it uh, and you're like, how are these guys making this happen? Right. Um, so, uh, I don't, uh, I don't think anyone that's an amateur is going to have a much fun on Idlewild, but, uh, from a professional perspective, it seems to be one of those courses that the pros love because of how challenging it is. So do they cover it live? So there is live. I don't watch live cause they're actually this year, they're starting to make you pay for some of that stuff. So, um, there's next day coverage, which is what, um, has been the traditional gold standard in that industry. Cool. I'll have to check it out today. So, yeah. So I would encourage you to because it's a it is a fun course. Like the greens are tiny. Like there are several. We have to put it on like a ten foot by ten foot spot and keep it there uh, right. and stuff. So it's a. I enjoy the course. It's one of my favorite tournaments of the year. Cool. I'll definitely check it out. But uh, how about yourself? What's on your mind this week? That actually connects to, uh, very oddly, two things that I I was thinking about in uh, very clear and cut ways. One is watching kind of low-grade coverage of sports and what Mm. that experience is like. So for uh, McKay and I, we actually watched the last couple holes of the Kentucky Open Golf Tournament. And the reason we were watching it is because... uh, a guy that her brother is like best friends with and I have played with once actually and McKay's known him his whole life. He just repeated as Kentucky Open champion, mm. uh, which is a big deal in the golf world in the sense that like the last person to do that was J.B. Holmes. So mm. to win this tournament is not easy. You have to play really well over three days and it's usually played on like one of the hardest courses in Kentucky and they – 
tip out the course and put the pins in tough positions and roll the greens at PGA level. So it's, it's a big win. But watching it on Facebook Live is a really mm-hmm. odd experience. And it being odd doesn't take away from it being enjoyable, I think. And in some ways, I think for... Uh, my aesthetic desires, it's actually really pleasant and kind of fun and adds a different dynamic to it, especially for my propensity to watch sports on mute. Uh, the lack of much commentary kind of adds to the experience too. And it it also just adds that real gritty feel to it and kind of makes it feel more like what it really is to play a professional sport and to watch people play professional sports. Mm-hmm. And my connection to this is the first time I went to a professional golf tournament and every time I've been since. What stands out is how the game they're playing is the exact same game that anyone would go play at their local municipal course. Mm -hmm. It's no different. And I think that's accentuated this week too. And watching the Kentucky Open contrast with watching the PGA Championship in some ways and the ways being the quality of the production of getting the event to TV screens and computer screens. Uh, So obviously the Facebook Live looked pretty crummy and the PJ Championship looks amazing, but it's also true that they're playing a public course. And uh, I think that they say in that public course receives like 50,000 rounds a year or something like that, which Mm -hmm. is incredible. So it's one of the most popular public courses in the world. So all of that just together of just kind of considering all of those things I, I, I found intriguing for lots of reasons. The Kentucky Open part connects with the disc golf tournament being in Kentucky in that uh, Serena and Venus and a bunch of other top players are in Nicholasville, Kentucky right now at the first mm. WTA event. And I just find that hilarious and also exciting for Kentucky. But it's a low-level WTA event, but it's the first one back. And Mm -hmm. it's a warm-up for the U.S. Open, which it has never been before. Normally, it's the Western and Southern Open in Cincinnati, but they're using this as their first tournament back. So Mm -hmm. I find it fascinating and hilarious that and says a lot about how Kentucky is a flyover state within flyover states that <laughs> they're saying the tournament is taking place in Lexington, but it's actually taking place in Nicholasville. So they're not even saying where it's actually taking place, but they choose the, the next closest biggest city. <laughs> That's and so funny. All of that connects to the last thing I find interesting is that the U S open has decided they're not going to have line judges. They're using just Hawkeye. Hmm. And so it's interesting that something we all knew was coming is expedited because of COVID. Mm-hmm. And they're doing it in theory to have less people on site, which I get because I think those big tournaments have something like 80 to 100 line judges that they shuffle around for the whole tournament. Mm-hmm. So that is a significant number of people. I would imagine they could have handled that, adding that many more people if they wanted to, but because the technology exists and because we all know it's coming, it's kind of an excuse to expedite that process. So it opens up that whole bag of what happens when we don't have refs and umps and line judges anymore. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I'm intrigued by the kind of uh, amateur coverage piece. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I think that one of the things I enjoy about, disc golf the coverage that they have is hey there's like four companies that make this coverage now so they travel around to these tournaments and Mm -hmm. they're covering usually like the top women's card the top men's card and like maybe two of the other men's cards if everybody is there Mm -hmm. um but they're all commentated by players that are actively playing in the game Mm -hmm. uh which i find interesting because it's you know as far as commentary goes a because of all the way these guys are, they're all play together all the time. And so they're all, you know, hanging out with each other all the time. So they all know each other. Um, but B, they actually have experience in playing that course on that day in a competitive environment, which mm-hmm. uh, at the same time as not being professional announcers means that they, uh, it's like my gold standard for what I want the announcers to be like mm-hmm. to be able to give a little bit more insight than someone who's just in a booth would give. Uh, but also not being super polished and professionalized at the same time. 
So I, I may find this more fascinating than it actually is, but that to extend those thoughts, I think watching amateur coverage of amateur events or low level professional events is exciting maybe. And I'll maybe speak for both of us and you can correct me if you're headed in a different direction, but I think it is a version or iteration of an ideal that we hold in our minds Mm -hmm. of where sports are not so monetized and they're not, as they are presented to us, it's not because they are a commodity that commodity that's really valuable monetarily. Rather, it's just something we enjoy and find fun and excitement and whatever else in. And so I was literally ha- thinking of this yesterday because Phil Mickelson went up into the booth, booth last night uh, after he finished his round. And his little commentary quips were exceptional. Uh, as far as adding to the value of what you were watching and taking the knowledge that he was sharing and pairing it with what we were seeing on the course. And for instance, one thing that really stood out is when he explained that what looked normal was actually really difficult. He would explain like why a shot that seemed kind of average was actually exceptional. And it mm. it was really compelling. It, it added interest of like, wow, we are watching something exceptional. And so I was thinking about what it would look like to have someone like Phil Mickelson commentating the Kentucky Open. Uh, mm-hmm. And so what you saw on your screen at the Kentucky Open made it look really not interesting or fascinating, but actually the golf that was being played there is barely, barely below PGA level. And so someone who could make that come across with, paired with like low level production, I think would be really fun. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it's, I particularly enjoy it. Cause I think to, you know, so today's final round coverage, one of the commentators, so it's, it's there are two guys this year, it's been Paul Ulibarri and Jeremy Colling who are doing most of the commentary on this main channel that does the best production value. Um, but Jeremy Colling is going to be in the final pairing in the final group this uh today and so that's always interesting because you like you hear these guys like oh that's how my shot wound up there because they can't i mean they often can't see where it's skipping or where it's going if it's a blind shot and so it's just fascinating that like they're even learning from watching the coverage and we're getting to hear their reaction as they're uh, essentially watching their round back right (laughs) that's that See, that's fascinating. There's so yeah. many options here to do this stuff differently. I guess that's what I take from it. I, that would be my hopeful take on it. Well, and I do, uh, I want to share this as well, because I think you'll find it interesting that, um, so Sarah, uh, my wife, uh, through her work is putting together a golf tournament right now. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's because uh, her boss wants there to be a golf tournament and that's a good fundraising opportunity. So they're putting it on. Uh, but she's learning a lot about, how these golf tournaments work Um, and it's really interesting in terms of um, some of the uh, ways it perpetuates the old boy culture Uh and so like you know these folks would be like we're we're gonna uh, we'll give our money and we'll get our foursome but we're gonna send three of our guys and we'd like one of you know your purchasing guys should be on our team Uh uh, and stuff it's just like it's totally a way and of course, these guys are taking four hours, five hours off work to come play golf, yes. which they're going to get paid for, yes. uh, which, and it's just like such a weird culture thing when you break it down and think about how it all works. The fundraising golf event world is a fascinating world and mostly not for good reasons. Uh, it, it It is its own like micro culture within a culture and it is so shrouded in patriarchal norms for how the world should work and extremely unapologetic about anything it does <laughs> or even knowing that it should be apologetic about something. It's one of the most sheltered worlds I've ever experienced. It, I'm realizing now it, it might be one of the most like normalized spaces that – only those within it know how to operate within it. Mm. And they have no idea that 99.9% of the world does not know how to operate in that space. Well, yeah, they're not thinking, you know, Sarah was talking like no one's going to ask me to be on their team. Right. 
and, and you know it's not even she doesn't play golf but even if she does play golf the chances of her getting invited to be part mm-hmm. are practically nil but that's that's never going through the course of anybody's mind that there's something uncomfortable about not having women on the team or right. only having the super attractive women on their team or whatever it may be right oh yeah it's very common amongst uh, guys I, that I grew up working with in bag rooms and practicing with that were trying to make it of uh, getting invited to go play in corporate events. That's really common. Well, apparently they were, um, they were putting together a team to play in another tournament because of course that's how it all works, right? Mm-hmm. You go, you, each group goes to the other group's tournaments. And apparently this, it was kind of unusual that this other tournament asked for uh, people's handicaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Sarah and her boss had to collect, collect the handicaps for the team that was going. And apparently it was like uh, Sarah compared it to uh jock strap size that no one really wanted to share real information or they're like, well, if that's his handicap, then mine must be this. And yeah, and just uh, all the same stuff that we talked about, about lying about that stuff in the, in the clubhouse. Gosh, that makes me laugh and gives me an icky feeling at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I no. hope they raise a lot of money from those goofballs. <laughs> I'm into that. Yeah. Well, um, you want to jump into our main topic for today? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So we're talking about uh, youth and aging and maturity and immaturity kind of all wrapped into one today. Do you, uh, you kind of brought this up, Kyle. Do you have kind of a lens that you wanted to, or an example that you wanted to put forward as a starting point? Sure. I I don't know if I have a, a a set specific one that perfectly embodies what I think would be interesting to talk about, but I think your brief introduction there kind of captures a lot of it, of what I think both of us want to do, and that is to kind of put this concept forward and to acknowledge that it is something that is ubiquitous in sports. You just said off air, making the implicit explicit. And that is this thing that age, maturity, how we receive messaging about how age operates in society at large and within sports is always happening. And it it never goes away, yet it's something we don't explicitly talk about all that often. And so I think my goal, our goal would be to make it explicit and just kind of let it sit there and kind of explore it a little bit and and see what is interesting about it and see if we can glean anything significant. So maybe as an example of how common or prevalent this idea of age uh, is in sports, I did about a six-minute sweep of headlines on sports websites today to see if I could uh, find a few. And I found about 50 headlines that all contained either an implicit or explicit mentioning of this. So for example, Dustin Johnson surrounded by young challengers leads the PGA championship. Hmm. Uh, A couple more after it all, Serena Williams still has number 24 insight. The hair, Carolina Hurricanes swept the Rangers out of the best of five play in a series, leaving the team to decide whether to bring back the 38-year-old or go with rookie sensation Igor Shesterkin. Uh, Tim Kirkjian saying, you can't control these young guys. We got to put a cap on the clubhouse. And then every headline about Serena and Federer is about, can they still do it at this age? And then some non-headline ones. Uh, Tiger Woods is using a longer putter this week literally because he can't bend over to putt with a shorter putter. There's a way of interpreting that is he's using a cane uh, because his back is so bad because of how he's been (laughs) swinging for so long. Jason Day can't get his ball out of the hole without grimacing. And I thought just watching the PGA, watching Day, watching Tiger, watching the other older guys and contrasting them with Hao Tung Lee, who's the Chinese player that was in the lead after two rounds and, how young and sprightly he is and just kind of like bouncing all over that course reminded me of watching Tiger when he was young and kind of bouncing around these courses. There's so many other examples. Maybe one more to mention was Bryson DeChambeau saying he wants to live to be 140 this week. The absurdity. (laughs) 
But all that to say that I think we receive a lot of messaging about aging by these things kind of uh, hovering beneath the surface, but kind of being on the surface. And I'm wondering if we can glean anything interesting by digging in a little bit. So there's a lot of ways to go with that. I'm wondering if there's any specific question or part of this that comes to mind for you right here at the start. Yeah, I think that the part that um, I kind of start with with this is, you know, we talked a little bit about the aging question um, a few weeks ago. Um, but I think I'm particularly interested here to think about it from the language of maturity and how we think about that in the game. And, you mm-hmm. know, I, I stumbled across a piece uh, before we came on air here about um, how we need to cut the college players' um, grace because they keep making stupid decisions because they're not old enough to know uh, – know better like their minds literally have not formed to the point where they understand exactly what's going on in a lot of these situations mm-hmm. um and so that's interesting but also juxtaposed with like you know i think uh, to go back to my my case in point here somebody like malcolm brogdon who came into the league you know he was an older guy 23 when he came into the league but like he didn't he's never really had that youthful having to grow into himself he came in as a prepared player mm-hmm. uh, versus someone like I, I don't know um robert williams at uh for the celtics who uh, has all the talent in the world but is kind of a wild person and so how do you kind of grow into that and then the messaging around that of like who is allowed to grow into that who is not um but particularly um, kind of what we, what we as outsiders put on folks and the unrealistic expectations that come from those kind of conversations. And perhaps even looking at, um, our boy LeBron as an example here. That's right. He's our boy here. Um, <laughs> uh, and the fact that he continues to stock his teams with these old fogies, even when, uh, there's a lot to suggest that it's hindering his capacity to move forward. And now, looking at him with Kyle Kuzma, who seems like by far the weak link on that team as the like one youth person, youthful individual on the team. Um, it's just an interesting dilemma and, and situation of how we understand experience and, and that, uh, that kind of maturity aspect in the sports world. I, I think that brings to mind for me this concept of professionalism and how it's so closely attached to this conversation Mm -hmm. and how we understand what a professional is. This was quite prevalent in one of JJ Reddick's most recent podcasts. They were talking about what it takes to stay in the league. And I think Mm -hmm. it was his contract with or conversation with Patrick Beverly, but they were saying of how when they came to the league and they were rookies, first year, second year, third year players, the thing that they gathered that made their long careers possible was learning how to work out smartly and Mm -hmm. learning how to work on the things that need to be worked on and to do it with a whole lot of discipline. And so again, all these conceptual things pop up in that conversation, what it means to be a professional, what it means to be disciplined, what it means to work, what smart work looks like. All these things get thrown out in that conversation, or not thrown out, but they come across in that conversation. And I I wonder what it would look like to take a second and unpack those more when someone uses those. Or if a journalist was to push on J.J. Reddick and say, like, what do you mean by that? And why didn't you know those things before you got to the league? And what was it like to learn those things? Or how do you impart those things to others why do you value certain things more than other things? And I, I guess I, I say that all with the intention of saying that I think there's some warning bells that should go off when J.J. Reddick says something like that in the sense that I, I, I feel like we hear from veterans or we hear from people that have been in professional sports for a long time and we take them as these old wizened soothsayers that have like absolute wisdom and truths that they're imparting to us. And I think one example of that that we should be weary of is that kind of like perfectionism part of it or that overachieving part of it 
or even to its most extreme example being like the Michael Jordan version of it or the, Mm. that like where you, you go into a a space that becomes toxic because it's being so perfect or it's being so veteran or so mature uh, that it's actually hurting individuals and Mm -hmm. communities. Yeah, I think I kind of go back to some stuff we said a few weeks ago about Pulisic um, and like these players that we see, these young soccer players or players in any league that we come see and their first 10 games, they're incredible because they're playing like without fear. And, you know, I was was listening to one of these NBA podcasts this week where they're talking about John Morant and how it's almost like John Morant needs to needs to calm down a little bit because he's going to hurt himself. Mm hmm long term but what do you like where's the line between calming somebody down but also losing losing that passion because how many folks have we seen come in on fire and then as soon as they have something to lose um they no longer they no longer have it anymore i mean you know freddie adu is the worst case scenario coming in uh with the capacity i think to do amazing things and then like not being able to follow through once you get in that professional locker room professional environment where you have to do it day in day out Mm -hmm. Um, and so there is like that line of how do you how do you maintain energy and passion and capacity while also maintaining uh your livelihood and not over committing yourselves to things Mm -hmm. um and where do we come down i think also as fans like do we want to see uh is the professionalism important or would we rather see like an all out kind of thing? You know, I think about um, there's a story that went around the ultimate Frisbee community uh, in Charlottesville when I was growing up about, I never met the guy, but a guy that um, he was like 45, 50 years old, uh, which is of course old for competitive sporting event, especially one that's as physically demanding as ultimate Frisbees. But there was a story about how he'd go and get, painkillers for and like just load himself up for a weekend because that's you know ultimate tournaments you're going for a weekend and you're playing Mm -hmm. you know seven games in a weekend if everything goes well um and so he would like he would purposely know he was going to suffer but he would just prepare himself for it and push through and like how much do we want like that level of passion versus how much do we want the the people that know how to moderate and, and sustain themselves for a long period of time That's a great question. And I'm thinking of examples of this now to stay with two that we have already mentioned. I'm thinking of what is more compelling for a fan to watch, John Morant or J.J. Redick? And as much as you and I might admire a J.J. Redick game or his game in general and might admire that he has had to work probably harder than most just to stay in the league for as long as he has, Mm -hmm. or like a Kyle Korver and how that contrasts with John Morant who we should probably say is a new young player in the league that just goes absolutely nuts on the court and wants to dunk on everybody and attempts these dunks and these plays that are just insane, but they're fascinating. Uh, The New York times actually had an article about him this week about how his misses are better than his makes, (laughs) which I find to be so true. And so, yeah, you think about what is valued in that uh, and what sort of messages messaging we receive from that. I often, too, uh, think of a friend of mine who's a, a huge golf fan, and his favorite golfers are what we call journeymen. Mm. Those guys you don't know, and unless you play, re- pay really close attention to the golfing world, you've never heard their names before. One that always stands out to me is Brian Harmon. Do you know who Brian Harmon is? Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. so Brian Harmon has been on the PJ Tour for like 17 years or something like that. Uh, I think he's got one, maybe two wins, and they're really minor tournament wins. But for the most part, he just makes like three-fourths of the cuts. And he's made like $100 million playing golf, and no one's ever heard of him. And no one has ever, in my opinion, except for his family and friends, tuned into a tournament to watch Brian Harmon play. That that's interesting, and and so like, what is the JJ Redick, the Brian Harmon, that sort of like role player, professional athlete, um, mean for us for those that are watching and paying attention, and pr- 
what do they not mean for people that aren't tuning to watch, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, and that brings me back to disc golf in some ways, because I think disc golf is fascinating in this way, in that there's like, and I think you see this in many sports, but I think, so like everyone that's on the pro disc golf tour is um, like better than anyone else around, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they're by definition, these are like the 70 best disc golf players in the world. Um, and yet the differences within that group in the same way that on the PGA tour, the differences between the top five to 10 guys and, you know, the rest of those 70 is significant. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's like, what is it like, like you still want those other, you need those other folks around. Mm -hmm. Um, but like, you know, they're going to these tournaments, these major tournaments like Idlewild and, you know, there's, I think there's 140 folks playing or something mm -hmm. like that. And 130 of them know they have no shot right. of winning that right. tournament. Um, and yet they're also, those guys can go, at least in the disc golf world, they can go play minor tournaments like every weekend and win. And so like, it makes sense. Like, Oh, every once in a while you want to go play in the big, the big boy leagues, so to speak. Um, but the PGA tour, you're just getting slammed every week. Right. Um, right. Or on, and in, in the NBA, you know, the bulls are getting blown down every week. Right. And it's like the professionalism to be somebody like, I don't know, Denzel Valentine, who's like, you know, the 10th guy on a bad team. Mm -hmm. um, like, what does it take to just do that? And how is, is being in the league is enough or, um, you know, and then plus what does it take for a long period of time? Like, you know, um, uh, who's who am I thinking about? Oh gosh, there's a there's an NBA player. There's a number of these. Anthony Tolliver. Mm -hmm. um, so Anthony Tolliver started an, an NBA game the other day. Anthony Tolliver was like 38. It has never been anyone's first choice mm -hmm. if everyone is healthy to start an NBA game, right? And yet he has been around for that long. And what is that like? How are you able to do that? And what is it that they give us that we want? Right. Uh, compare and then. You know, it is interesting because I compare it to, um, and when, when you first started talking about this difference, the first person that came to mind for me that kind of bridges the the gap in some ways is somebody like Steph, mm -hmm. who, um, like, I don't, he's obviously changed his game mm -hmm. because, you know, he had all these ankle issues, he's had to do it, but he maintains the kind of, like, edge, the fun, mm -hmm. the wanting to do weird and different things, which I think we see so many, like, LeBron, I just... I don't think LeBron is having much fun playing basketball mm -hmm. um, and I don't, he's trying to make statements and stuff and it, it leads to exciting things, but it's not the same place that I feel like jaw and it may be Steph are coming from there. Mm -hmm. This brought up so many things for me. I'm having trouble like codifying my thoughts and the meaningful <laughs> things. Here. So I, I'm going to pick up on the last thing you said, that being LeBron, Honest, if I'm most honest about where my interest in this topic came from, it was watching him play the other night. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time I think in, so I we started watching him play in the NBA when we were like sophomore. I was I think I was a sophomore in college, so 2004, I think was his first year, 2003, 2004 season. And the other night was the first time he looked a step slow to me. And it might have been, it was, it was different. And I'm maybe making something out of nothing here, but, and I don't have data to back this up, but it was, I've watched him play a lot of basketball and I've watched him play lazy games where he obviously was just not into the game. And I've watched him play lazy possessions and I've seen him play really tired. This was none of those. What I was saw for the first time was age. And I saw an aging basketball player that did not have that spring, did not have that quick first step. And it, it's subtle because LeBron James has so much natural talent and his his physical prowess is more than most. So being a step slow for him is still means being pretty freaking good, right? But <laughs> it was just a little bit off. And I, I was it really struck me for some reason to see him lose a step. And I have to admit that it might have something to do with my own perceptions of my own body as it ages. Mm -hmm. And I think this is maybe a part of this conversation that I want to also as make an explicit. ambulance goes by in the yeah. background. The irony <laughs> is real. <laughs> um, 
but it's that I like part of the messaging I think we receive in this conversation as it happens in the sports world is we receive what are to be truisms about our own bodies and how we should relate to our own bodies as they're aging and how maybe most of the messaging we receive is subtle negative messaging of that mm-hmm. our bodies are not like theirs, therefore we're not as good or healthy or whatever, you know. And so in that way, seeing LeBron lose a step, it just struck me. And I have to admit that I, it might have to do with my own acknowledgement of mortality, that uh, I'm the same age as LeBron. And that has always been something in my life to like keep in mind or something that pops in my brain of like, wow, that's fascinating. And if I can extend this just a little bit more to say that part of this interest or what makes me curious in this space is to what extent do we allow these individuals to change throughout their career as it relates mm-hmm. to maturity and immaturity? And so this is what you were just kind of saying about Steph of maintaining what we would call youthful energy in an aging veteran body. So all those things are just wrought with mm-hmm. socialization. We create those constructs and we create those expectations. And to what extent do we force these individuals into a place to where they have to fit our idea of what a veteran looks like. Yeah. I might just end that. Hmm. Well, I think that's fascinating. And I, you know, I kind of, um, the energy piece is so interesting. Um, the thinking about it from that youthful versus a veteran energy level. Um, cause yeah. And it's, um, cause we, I think what we're seeing is at the end of the day, we're setting a multiple different goalposts for these players, right? Mm-hmm. So we have um, winning a championship. Uh, we also, but we also have this very clear, like being a player that we want to watch play. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, from that winning a championship, clearly the professionalism aspect matters and is perhaps most important in that environment. Mm-hmm. Um Although it's interesting to watch the Warriors, which are a team that have kind of flouted that rule and a coach in Steve Kerr who has like uh, kind of been willing to step outside of that professionalism bubble a little bit uh, has been interesting. But on the flip side, you see, you know, the Bulls still kind of have that we are going to do exactly the right thing, exactly the right way mentality is still very much at the forefront for so many mm-hmm. Um but then in the flip side, you know, that is very antithetical. And I think that's been, a, you know, I think we, um, through my multiple years of criticism of LeBron, that remains towards the top is that he doesn't feel like he's having fun and his teams never feel like they're having fun. They feel like inordinate amounts of per- pressure on those players at any given time, which makes them not a fun watch. Right. Uh, and so that's very much, you know, where my line comes is I would rather watch uh, and the same with the Rockets. The Rockets are a better example right now. Like um, the bubble has been a little bit different, but this brand of basketball they're playing is just so difficult to watch. But professionally, it is proven to be a very, very effective way of doing things. Um, and it's like, so these players have chosen, we're going to buy into this is the way we're going to do it. Um, and, you know, who am I to... Uh, you know, I can't tell anybody not to, but it does lead to these multiple things that they have to hold in their heads. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think one of the big things I'm taking away, particularly going back to your body thing, um, is to go to Nick Simmons again, who we've talked about several times mm-hmm. recently. Yeah. Um, he released a thing this week where he did um, uh, the U.S. Army fitness test or whatever it is that you get graded on when you're going into the army or whatever, right. or maybe it's made up who knows how real any of these things yeah, are. Right. Um, but it, you know, you had to do a certain number of sit-ups in two minutes, certain number of push-ups in two minutes, and then you had to run two miles. Um, and it was interesting. He was, he did the first two, the sit-ups and the push-ups, and then he ran his two miles. And interestingly, he had this goal for 12 minutes, which of course is, you know, uh, blisteringly fast in my mind but it's like he was talking about how when he won idaho state championships as a high schooler he he ran in like 10 something or maybe even uh something in that ballpark um but what was interesting to me there was that he talked about how when he won that state championship 
he was 130 pounds. Um, and when he won or was at the Olympics, like his peak fitness for the 800, he was 160 pounds. Wow. Uh, and he now weighs 180 pounds, but that he's much healthier and like stronger and feels better as a person at 180 pounds. And so just like that ability and knowing that these people, these athletes, even though we view them as the paragon of health, really what we're seeing is not the healthiest form of their bodies. It's the healthiest or the most effective form for their particular form of competition. Right. And I think that's something that we often lose in this, in this conversation. Right. That is a great point. And I've, I feel like there is a layer here that's worth mentioning is that that's the most commodified version. Mm -hmm. And so not only is it not, the most healthy, it is also true that it is the version of the body that is going to make the most money mm -hmm. and not just for that individual athlete, but for other entities. And so to get back to LeBron, maybe a little bit, this is, and this is true for golf and tennis and these other sports where I feel like age is such a part of it. Well, age is a part of every sport. That's I, right. <laughs> That's important to point out, I think, is uh, it can show up in other sports, but it's prevalent in every single sport. And I, I'm thinking of how an allowance for youthfulness decreases with or uh, alongside an increase in commodification. So the more advertisements you slap on your jersey or your golf shirt or your shoes decreases the extent to which you can act like a kid. Mm -hmm. And so what does that mean when, for our idea of what it means to be a professional? So if it, to be a professional means to commodify yourself and to make yourself valuable to a society at large, thereby decrease, decreasing your youthfulness or allowance for play. What does that say? What do we do with that? How do we feel about that? And another thing that just came to mind, I know I'm kind of all over the place, but another thing that really made this interesting for me this week was in a golf podcast I think I was listening to where I came across this is they were talking about Tiger and what's it like playing as an older man versus a younger man and one thing that I have never heard talked about before but I found it just so compelling and interesting way of addressing this is what is difficult about golf and why one day you can shoot a 72 and then the next day you shoot an 82 and then the next day you shoot a 64 part of the reason that happens is because your body changes every moment you're alive. And so literally your eyesight changes throughout your career, which changes how you see the ball, which changes the messages you send to your brain for how to use your muscles, but your muscles mm -hmm. are changing and your amount of oxygen that is released in your body is less and your VO2 changes. So all these minuscule changes happen overnight. They happen over a tournament. They happen over a season and they happen over a career. And so part of what these professional athletes are doing in many ways is learning how to adapt as opposed to learning how to perfect and I found I found that really nerdy and intriguing um, way of uh, thinking about it, of like why sometimes does Roger Federer hit a backhand into the net and other times he clears the net perfectly? Um, well, part of the answer is that his body's different today than it was yesterday. And so that's why he's not a machine. Well, I think it's important to point out here as well. That is fascinating. That in, in addition to the body changing, the mind is changing right, every right, day. right. Too. So, I mean, I think that's, I think about, you know, you mentioned this matters in every sport. Uh, and I think that's part of what's interesting. Like even poker or snooker or darts, mm -hmm. these like sports that really don't require very much physical strength or, right. uh, you know, if you watch these guys that play darts, you don't have to be in great shape to play these games. Right, right. Um, but there's a certain like mental capacity that seems to be there at a certain age range. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe it's a matter of just desire. Like you can only maintain your desire and ability to stay focused for that period of time. Right. But there is like a drive. And I think that's part of what makes somebody like LeBron or Jordan. I think that's an underappreciated portion of his drive is that how long it lasted. Mm -hmm. um, that's not easy to maintain that 
drive for that long. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it's easier for folks that um, kind of like are forced to somebody like LeBron, who I think are kind of forced to that, but somebody like Brian Harmon, like, how does he maintain that drive to be there year after year after year? Right. Um, yeah. That's a good question. And that brings up the Michael Phelps documentary and it brings up Dara Torres for me. So Dara Torres, I think she competed in four Olympics and tried for a fifth and her fifth one, she would have been 45, but didn't make it. And, it ought to, have you seen Michael Phelps' documentary yet? I have not, no. Um, so it's on mental health of primarily Olympians and the the plague of depression within the Olympic team, the American Olympic team in particular here, is what he's focusing on. But of especially for a sport like that where you spend four years critiquing your body, uh, to, Mm -hmm. to peak for a couple days or maybe even in some cases like 30 seconds or 10 seconds, you spend four years Mm -hmm. for those 10 seconds. And if it doesn't go exactly how you're planning it, then that's so troublesome, uh, for so many reasons. And, uh, you think then about how that pairs with how much we value the Olympics as a society and how talk about paragons, Olympic athletes are, uh, lionized in these ways that make them seem otherworldly, like they're gods and goddesses. So uh, if they're gods and their 10 seconds don't go well and they fall down this <laughs> tragic spiral, what what kind of messages are we receiving watching that happen? Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I will say just to kind of um, take another angle on it, there's, I've found some really distasteful Instagram content this week that has fascinated me nonetheless about how we've commodified the youthful aspect of it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, which is, um, that there's the national AAU, uh, track and field championships happening right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they maybe are over at this point, but, um, there are some absolutely phenomenal performances by these like, eight to 15, 16 year olds, like seeing a, seeing a 10 year old run, um, like a, uh, like a four thirty five mile right. is mind blowing. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, like, like capitalizing on that youthfulness while also forcing them into the professionalism bubble is just, I found so distasteful. And so, um, uh, you know, I think what they're selling is the youthfulness, but what we're what they're forcing is the professionalism, mm-hmm. uh, which is perhaps what we see too often, and what we find most, dis- at least I find most distasteful mm-hmm. in some of these things. To maybe extend that to a place to where it's so conceptual that it's not even worth <laughs> trying to talk about, but it, it does get into that space of like who owns one's body. And the moment you sign a contract with an advertiser or a something like Nike or even with a team to a large extent, and this is true for sports maybe than in other professions, your body belongs to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, this also kind of piqued my interest in or the idea of, and there is a lot of data out there on this and I haven't looked at it in a while, but know that it exists of what long-term contracts do to baseball player performance Mm -hmm. and how a lot of new contracts are incentivizing things within the contract saying, so like if you hit this number on your six year, you get this part of your contract. Um, Because usually those long-term contracts kind of hurt players uh, productivity. Hmm. Well, and that um, that's fascinating. And I also am reminded, um, that really um, most people are selling their bodies in some way, shape or form. Right. Right. I mean, my dad is a self-employed carpenter in many ways. He is selling his body and the use of it for um, the building of other people's houses and additions. You know, it's, it's maybe a little more clear with a coal miner, but um, Mm -hmm. even those of us, even you, I mean, particularly prescient this year going into a classroom, where you're risking getting sick in any given moment. Right. Um, it's very much your body and your health that you're, you're 
giving out on a contract basis to the school system. Exactly. Um, so good luck with that. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> oh my. Well, do you have anything else? I, I probably do, but I think I'm kind of maxed on it. I think I, <laughs> I, I went in too many directions. So maybe I'll have to think about it a little bit more and see what comes from it. Well, I feel like we just talked off the cuff for a while, which is maybe not the worst thing in the world. Yeah. So, but you got any trivia for us this week? Um, you know what? I do not. Oh my goodness, Kyle. <laughs> I forgot. Oh my goodness. Oh, sorry. I got, I'm getting old. Uh, well, here's, here's my trivia back for you. Then. Okay. I want to know, um, how many miles of the tennis courts in Nicholasville are outside of uh, Lexington? Ooh, that's a like good how, question. Uh, like how 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 far from the airport or whatever or whatever you want to measure it are these tennis courts? Do you know? Did you look it up? I have no idea. No. So I'm guessing these tennis courts are at least 25 miles from downtown Lexington. I think that's probably accurate. Well, it's funny how all that works. I mean, like. The Redskins don't play in Washington. Right, um, right. You know, what the Cowboys are in Arlington, Texas right, now, is that right, right? Yeah. So these things are all uh, messed up. Anyway, <laughs> Nicholasville, Kentucky, where we used to go buy liquor. <laughs> <laughs> and if you, the, the, ten, the tennis center there is exact, looks exactly what you think it looks like. And to think that Serena Williams and Coco Golf and others are descending on Nicholasville right now is just so fascinating. Do you have feelings about all these folks pulling out of the U.S. Open? Like the U.S. Open is clearly not going to mean what it could have meant before. Like, does it still is it still a major in your mind? Um, I think so. For right now, it is. Yes. I, I think it is. I think it'll still probably be the strongest field uh, of the year, but not as strong as it could be. So I, I think it's still a major, but I have no idea what this is going to look like. And I'm actually skeptical that it's still going to happen. Mm, fair enough. Yeah. All right, man. Well, good deal. Cool. I enjoyed that. Absolutely. Well, uh, thank you all for listening. Please give us a rating and review wherever you listen to this, and we'll be back next week. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, man. To pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody's, 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 nobody's calling LeBron Black Jesus. I was a huge Dikembe Mutombo fan.